Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I'm reading today from a sermon, a sermon by Charles Spurgeon. It's called Law and Grace. It was delivered on Sabbath morning, as he called it, August 26, 1855, at the New Park Street Chapel in Southwark in England. Romans 5.20 is his text. It says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. There's no point upon which men make greater mistakes than upon the relation which exists between the law and the gospel. Some men put the law instead of the gospel. Others put the gospel instead of the law. Some modify the law and the gospel and preach neither law nor gospel, and others entirely abrogate the law by bringing in the gospel. Many there are who think that the law is the gospel and who teach that men, by good works of benevolence, honesty, righteousness, and sobriety, may be saved. Such men do err. On the other hand, Many teach that the gospel is a law, that it has certain commands in it, by obedience to which men are meritoriously saved. Such men err from the truth and understand it not. A certain class maintain that the law and the gospel are mixed, and that partly by observance of the law, partly by God's grace, men are saved. These men understand not the truth, they are false teachers. This morning I shall attempt, God helping me to show you that what is the design of the law and then what is the end of the gospel. The coming of the law is explained in regards to its objects. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Then comes the mission of the gospel. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. I shall consider this text in two senses this morning. First, as it respects the world at large and the entrance of the law into it, and then afterwards, as respecting the heart of the convinced sinner and the entrance of the law into the conscience. First, we shall speak of the text as concerning the world. The object of God in sending the law into the world was that the offense might abound. But then comes the gospel, for where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. First then, in reference to the entire world, God sent the law into the world that the offense might abound. There, there was sin in the world long before God sent the law. God gave his law that the offense might be seen to be an offense. Aye, and that the offense might abound exceedingly more than it could have done without its coming. There was sin long before Sinai smoked. Long ere the mountain trembled beneath the weight of deity, and the dread trumpet sounded exceeding loud and long, there had been transgression. And where that law has never been heard, in heathen countries where that word has never gone forth, yet there is sin. Because though men cannot sin against the law which they have never seen, yet they can all rebel against the light of nature, against the dictates of conscience, 
and against that traditional remembrance of right and wrong which has followed mankind from the place where God created them. All men in every land have consciences and therefore all men can sin. The ignorant Koikoi, who has never heard anything of a god, has just so much of the light of nature that in the things that are outwardly good or bad he will discern the difference. And though he foolishly bows down to sticks and stones, he has a judgment which, if he used it, would teach him better. If he chose to use his talents, he might know there is a God. For the apostle, when speaking of men who have only the light of nature, plainly declares that the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. That's Romans one twenty. Without a divine revelation, men can sin and sin exceedingly. Conscience, nature, tradition, and reason being each of them sufficient to condemn them for their violated commandments. The law makes no one a sinner. All men are such in Adam and were so practically before its introduction. It entered that the offense might abound. Now this seems a very terrible thought at first sight and many ministers would have shirked this text altogether but when I find a verse I do not understand I usually think it is a text I should study and I try to seek it out before my heavenly father and then when he has opened it to my soul I reckon it my duty to communicate it to you with the holy aid of the spirit the law entered that the offense might abound. I will attempt to show you how the law makes offenses abound. First, the law tells us that many things are sins which we should never have thought to be so if it had not been for the additional light. Even with the light of nature and the light of conscience and the light of tradition, There are some things we should never have believed to be sins had we not been taught so by the law. Now, what man, by the light of conscience, would keep holy the Sabbath day? Suppose he never read the Bible and never heard of it. If he lived in a South Sea island, he might know there was a God, but not by any possibility could he find out that the seventh part of his time should be set apart to that God. We find that there are certain festivals and feasts among heathens and that they do set apart days in honor of their fancied gods. But I should like to know where they could discover that there was a certain seventh day to be set apart to God to spend the time in his house of prayer. How could they? Unless indeed tradition may have handed down the fact of the original consecration of that day by the creating Jehovah, I cannot conceive it possible that either conscience or reason could have taught them such a command as this, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you nor your son nor your daughter, your manservant, maidservant, cattle, 
nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. Moreover, if in the term law we comprehend the ceremonial ritual, we can plainly see that many things, in appearance quite indifferent, were by it constituted sins. The eating of animals that do not chew the cud and and divide the hoof, the wearing of linsey woolsey, the the sitting on a bed polluted by a leper, or with a thousand other things, all seem to have no sin in them, but the law made them into sins, and so made the offense to abound. Number two, it is a fact which you can verify by looking at the workings of your own mind that law has a tendency to make men rebel. Human nature rises against restraint. I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. The depravity of man is excited to rebellion by the promulgation of laws. So evil are we that we conceive at once the desire to commit an act simply because it is forbidden. Children, we all know, as a rule, will always desire what they may not have, and if forbidden to touch anything, will either do so when an opportunity serves or will long to be able to do so. The same tendency any student of human nature can discern in mankind at large. Is then the law chargeable with my sin? God forbid. Romans 7, but sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence for sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it slew me, killed me. The law is holy and just and good. It is not faulty, but sin uses it as an occasion of offense and rebels and rebels when it ought to obey. Augustine placed the truth in a clear light when he wrote, The law is not in fault, but our evil and wicked nature, even as a heap of lime is still and quiet until water is poured thereon, but then it begins to smoke and burn, not from the fault of the water, but from the nature and kind of the lime, which will not endure it. Thus, you see, this is a second sense in which the entrance of the law causes the offense to abound. Number three, again, the law increases the sinfulness of sin by removing all excuse of ignorance. Until men know the law, their crimes have at least a palliation of partial ignorance, but when the code of rules is spread before them, their offenses become greater once they are committed against light and knowledge. He who sins against conscience shall be condemned. Of how much sore punishment shall he be thought worthy who despises the voice of Jehovah, defies his sacred sovereignty, willfully tramples on his commands? The more light, the greater guilt. The law affords that light and so causes us to become double offenders. Oh, you nations of the earth who have heard the law of Jehovah, your sin is increased and your offense abounds. Methinks I hear someone say, How unwise it must have been 
that a law should come to make these things abound. Does it not at first sight seem very harsh that the great author of the world should give us a law which will not justify but indirectly causes our condemnation to be greater? Does it not seem to be a thing which a gracious God would not reveal but would have withheld? But know you that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and understand you that there is a gracious purpose even here. Natural men dream that by a strict performance of duty they shall obtain favor. But God says thus, I will show them their folly by proclaiming a law so high that they will despair of attaining in unto it. They think that works will be sufficient to save them. They think falsely. They will be ruined by their mistake. I will send them a law so terrible in its censures, so unflinching in its demands, that they cannot possibly obey it. And they will be driven even to desperation and come and accept my mercy through Jesus Christ. They cannot be saved by the law, not by the law of nature. As it is, they have sinned against it, but yet I know they have foolishly hoped to keep my law and and think by works of the law they may be justified. Whereas I have said, by the works of the law no flesh living can be justified. Therefore, I will write a law. It shall be a, a black and heavy one, a burden which they cannot carry. And then they will turn away and say, I will not attempt to perform it. I will ask my Savior to bear it for me. Imagine a case. Some young men are about to go to sea, where I foresee they will meet with a storm. Suppose you put me in a position where I may cause a tempest before the other shall arise. Well, by the time the natural storm comes on, those young men will be a long way out at sea, and they'll be wrecked and ruined before they can put back and be saved. But what do I? Why, when they're just at the mouth of the river, I send a storm, putting them in the greatest danger and precipitating them ashore so that they are saved. Thus did God. He sends a law which shows them the roughness of the journey. The tempest of law compels them to put back to the harbor of free grace and saves them from a most terrible destruction which would otherwise overwhelm them. The law never came to save men. It never was its intention at all. It came on purpose to make the evidence complete that salvation by works is impossible and thus to drive the elect of God to rely wholly on the finished salvation of the gospel. Now, just to illustrate my meaning, let me describe it by one more figure. You all remember those, those high mountains called the Alps. Well, it would be a great mercy if those Alps were a little higher. It would have been at all events for Napoleon's soldiers when he led his large army over and caused thousands to perish in the crossing. 
Now, if it could have been possible to pile another Alps on their summit and make them higher than the Himalayas, would not the increased difficulty have deterred him from his enterprise and so have averted the destruction of thousands? Napoleon demanded, Is it possible? Barely possible, was the reply. Avance, advance, cried Bonaparte, and the host were soon toiling up the mountainside. Now, by the light of nature, it does seem possible for us to go over this mountain of works. But all men would have perished in the attempt. The path even of this lower hill being too narrow for mortal footsteps. God therefore put another law, like a mountain, on the top. And now the sinner says, I cannot climb over that. It's a task beyond Herculean might. I see before me a narrow pass called the pass of Jesus Christ's mercy, the pass of the cross. Methinks I will wend my way thither. I'll go there. But if it had not been that the mountain was too high for him, he would have gone climbing up and climbing up and until he sank into some chasm or was lost under some mighty avalanche or in some other way perished eternally. But the law comes that the whole world might see the impossibility of being saved by works. Let us turn to the more pleasing part of the subject, the, the superabundance of grace. Having bewailed the devastations and injurious deeds of sin, it delights our heart to be assured that grace did much more abound. Number four, grace excels sin in the numbers it brings beneath its sway. It is my firm belief that the number of the saved will be far greater than that of the damned. It is written that in all things Jesus shall have the preeminence, and why is this to be left out? Can we think that Satan will have more followers than Jesus? While it is written that the redeemed are a number that no man can number, it is not recorded that the lost are beyond numeration. Or true, we know that the visible elect are ever a remnant, but then there are others to be added. Think for a moment of the army of infant souls. They fell in Adam, but being elect were all redeemed and regenerated. This is Mr. Spurgeon's opinion of how this works with young people. What though those who have been deluded by superstition and destroyed by lust must be counted by thousands? Grace has still the preeminence. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. We admit that the number of the damned will be immense, but we do think that the two states of infancy and millennial glory will furnish so great a reserve of saints that Christ shall win the day. Again, he says, methinks, we think. These are his ideas. The procession of the lost may be long. There must be thousands and thousands of thousands of thousands of those who have perished. But I believe the greater procession of the King of Kings shall be composed of more than this, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. The trophies of free grace will be far more than the trophies of sin. 
And yet again, grace does much more abound because a time shall come when the world shall be all full of grace. Whereas there has never been a period in this world's history where it was wholly given up to sin. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, there was still a display of grace in the world. For in the garden at the close of the day, God said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. And since that first transgression, there has never been a moment when grace has entirely lost its footing in the earth. God has always had his servants on earth. At times, they've been hidden by fifties in the caves, but they've never been utterly cut off. Grace might be low, the stream might be very shallow, but it has never been wholly dry. There's always been a salt of grace in the world to counteract the power of sin. The clouds have never been so universal as to hide the day. But the time is fast approaching when grace, I believe, shall extend all over our poor world and be universal. According to the Bible testimony, we look for the great day when the dark cloud which has swathed this world in darkness shall be removed and it shall shine once more like all its sister planets. It has been for many a long year clouded and veiled by sin and corruption, but the last fire shall consume its rags and sackcloth. Of course, we believe, and I'm adding to Spurgeon here, that this will happen, of course, when Jesus comes. After that fire, the world in righteousness shall shine. The huge molten mass now slumbering in the bowels of our common mother shall furnish the means of purity. Palaces and crowns and peoples and empires are all to be melted down. And after, like a, a plague house, the present creation has been burned up entirely, God will breathe upon the heated mass and it will cool down again. He will smile on it, as he did when he first created it. And the rivers will run down the new-made hills. The oceans will float in new-made channels. The world will again be the abode of the righteous forever and ever. This fallen world will be restored to its orbit. That gem which was lost from the scepter of God shall be set again. Yea, he shall wear it as a signet about his arm. Christ died for the world, and what he died for he will have. He died for the whole world, and the whole world he will have when he has purified and cleansed it and fitted it for himself. Where sin abounded, Grace did much more abound, for grace shall be universal, whereas sin never was. One more thought. Has the world lost its possessions by sin? It has gained far more by grace. Oh, true, we have been expelled from a garden of delights where peace, love, and happiness found a glorious habitation. True, Eden is not ours with its luscious fruits, its blissful bowers, and its rivers flowing over sands of gold. But we have, through Jesus, a fairer habitation. He has made us sit together in heavenly places. The plains of heaven exceed the fields of paradise in the ever-new delights which they afford, while the tree of life and the river from the throne render the inhabitants of the celestial regions more than emparadised. Did we lose natural life and subject ourselves to painful death by sin? Well, has not grace revealed an immortality 
for the sake of which we are too glad to die? Life lost in Adam is more than restored in Christ. We admit that our original robes were rent in sunder by Adam, but Jesus has clothed us with a divine righteousness far exceeding in value even the spotless robes of created innocence. We mourn our low and miserable condition through sin, but we will rejoice at the thought that we are now more secure than before we fell and are brought into closer alliance with Jesus than our standing could have procured us. Oh, Jesus, you have won us an inheritance more wide than Adam ever lost by his folly. You have filled us a coffer with greater riches than our sin has ever lavished. Your grace has overstopped our sins. Grace doth much more abound. That's part one of the message. We'll go on to that other part at a, at a later date, very soon. This message is from a collection of Spurgeon messages created by Perry Boardman, known as Spurgeon's Gems. And you uh, can go there yourself and read it. You can access this series of messages online in written form, SpurgeonGems.com. Well, this is the Hackberry House of Chosun, and this audio is being released on the 11th of January, 2023. Lord willing, we'll get to talk again real soon. Bye-bye.